This morning we are re-entering into our study of Philippians. So I encourage you to have a Bible open to Philippians chapter 3, but let's uh, pause before we open the word for prayer. Lord God, we ask that you would teach us your commandments. Lord, incline our hearts to your testimonies. We pray that you would clear away any fog that is perhaps obstructing our view of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray now for a powerful time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In the season when Paul wrote Philippians, there had been a certain group of people who really had been causing great difficulty and heartache for the Apostle Paul as Paul traveled around the Mediterranean world on his gospel mission. By the time that Paul was writing to the Philippians, these particular troublemakers had been dogging Paul for over a decade, in the words of Gordon Fee. And the irksome group that we're talking about were called the Judaizers. Who were the Judaizers? Well, the Judaizers were Jewish, Jewish Christians who insisted that Gentile converts to Jesus should observe Torah. In other words, these people argued that Gentile Christians must add the yoke of the law of Moses to their faith if those Gentile Christians would truly be saved. And specifically, the Judaizers were saying that male Gentile converts to Christ must be circumcised. Now, physical circumcision had been the sign of the covenant with Abraham. Circumcision was the physical marker that marked males as covenant people under the old covenant. And circumcision was connected to God's promise of offspring. Now, the Judaizers, these Jewish Christians, they were insisting that Gentile Christians must be circumcised. But, but again, just get the basic point here. For the Judaizers, it was Jesus plus something. Jesus plus something. If you wanted to truly be saved and to belong to the people of God, it was Jesus plus something. If you wanted to appear righteous before God, it was Jesus plus something. Jesus plus circumcision. Again, the Judaizers had been dogging Paul's steps for over a decade, spreading this very dangerous teaching of what we can call works righteousness. A good definition of works righteousness is given to us by Brian Vickers in his book, Justification by Grace Through Faith. Vickers says that works righteousness is an attempt to establish righteousness in any other way than how God intends. I think that's a good, simple definition of works righteousness. Again, says Vickers, works righteousness is an attempt to establish righteousness in any way other than how God intends. Well, friends, with all of that as just some background, let's dive into our text now, which is Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. 
In verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brothers, or we could viably translate this as, in addition, brothers and sisters, in addition, rejoice in the Lord. Paul has already issued the call to rejoice three times in Philippians, and Paul has used the phrase, in the Lord, four times to this point in the letter. Our joy is to be centered, found in the Lord. And then Paul says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Well, what's Paul talking about here? What same things is he now writing to the Philippians? Probably what Paul means here is that in times past when he had been present with the Philippians, he had orally taught them the same things that he is now about to write down. And those things concerned the dangerous teaching of the Judaizers. And so he says here, look, I have zero hesitation in writing down these warnings that I've already taught you orally, and it's safe for you, or as it's sometimes translated here, it's a safeguard for you. It's a safeguard for you to listen again to my warning about the Judaizers. And then Paul is going to hit it pretty hard in verse 2. Now, if you were a passenger in a car traveling down a winding highway, uh, you're doing 100, 110 kilometers an hour, and you come around a corner and suddenly you see a tree lying across the road, uh, you might at that point cry out to the driver, right? You're sitting in the passenger seat, you cry out to the driver, look out, look out. I want you to take note here of the cry of danger that is repeated three times in this verse. Look out, look out, look out. There is a real urgency here in Paul. Paul says first, Look out for the dogs. With the word dogs, Paul is referring here to the Judaizers. He's referring to those who would add this requirement of circumcision to faith in Christ. Now, my family has two dogs at home. I love our dogs. There are millions of people in the Western world who have dogs as domesticated pets. But in the ancient world that Paul was writing in, dogs were considered to be loathsome creatures. They were creatures that roamed around the countryside scavenging through garbage for something to eat. They were filthy. And generally speaking in scripture, dogs come in for bad press. And certainly to call another human being a dog was considered to be a great insult. There was a history within Judaism of Jewish people calling Gentiles dogs. Gentiles, <clears throat> excuse me, Gentiles were the unclean, filthy ones. Well, I think it's more than likely that the Judaizers had been using the term dogs to describe uncircumcised Gentiles. And now in Philippians 3.2, what Paul is doing is he's turning the tables on the Judaizers. He's applying the term to them. 
Look out for the dogs, says Paul to the Philippians. And then second, he says, look out for the evildoers. The Judaizers would claim that they were doing the good work of the law and requiring Gentile Christians to be circumcised as they were, the Judaizers would say, well, we're just dutifully obeying what Moses has laid down. But here Paul says, no, in fact, what you're doing actually is you're promoting a trust in works in order to get right with God, and that is nothing short of evil. You are evildoers in promoting Jesus plus the work of circumcision. Church, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who evilly promote the idea of Jesus plus something in order for us to be right with God. And then third, Paul says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now here, Paul engages a brilliant little wordplay in the original Greek text. Follow with me here. The Greek word for circumcision is peritome, which means to cut around. Peritome, to cut around. But the Greek word that is translated here as mutilate is not peritome, it's katatome. Katatome means to cut to pieces. Essentially, Paul's idea here is this, that with the advent of Jesus Christ, we now live under the new covenant, which was sealed in his blood. Any old covenant insistence on circumcision for new covenant Christians is nothing more than a mutilation. Circumcision is not the sign of the new covenant. It's not required in order for us to be right with God. To insist on circumcision for Christians, as the Judaizers were doing, and to perform circumcision thinking that it has some sort of spiritual significance under the new covenant, this amounts to a mutilation. And then we get verse 3. Paul is speaking to Christian believers, whether Jewish or Gentile, and he says, for we are the paratome, the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put how much confidence in the flesh? No confidence in the flesh. What I want you to notice in this verse is the close proximity of the words circumcision and the words Spirit of God. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, God had promised, hadn't he, that a day would come when he would circumcise the hearts of his people. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He had promised that circumcision would become a heart issue and not a lower body issue. And in that new covenant day, God would give his spirit to people so that those people could obey his commands. That's Ezekiel 11:19 and Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Paul is saying here, we believers in Jesus Christ are new covenant people, 
So now the only circumcision that affects us is a circumcision of the heart wrought by God's Spirit. Elsewhere, Paul says in Romans 2.29, listen to what he says there, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. In Colossians 2.11, he tells us believers that we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, which he calls there the circumcision of Christ. And in still other places like Galatians 5.6 and Galatians 6.15, Paul makes sure to tell us that physical circumcision amounts to nothing. It counts for nothing under the new covenant. Paul says in this verse that Christians under the new covenant are people who glory in Christ Jesus. That is, we who have been redeemed in Jesus boast in him. We take pride in him where our right standing with God is concerned, we don't take pride in any of our own so-called works of righteousness in terms of having right standing with God. We glory in Christ. And he says we put no confidence in the flesh. That is to say that as weak and frail people living in this present evil age, we put no confidence in anything we do or in anything we are where getting right with God is concerned. Listen very carefully. It's not baptism that makes us right with God. It's not being from a good Christian home that makes us right with God. It's not serving as a missionary for eight years that makes us right with God. It's not taking communion that makes us right with God. It's not our obedience to God that makes us right with God. It's Jesus who makes us right with God. We glory in him and in him alone. But now, even as believers who have been in Jesus Christ for a long time, we can still so easily gravitate toward works righteousness. Yes? We can start to operate in the very thing that Paul combats here. We start to operate in a way where we think that our spiritual achievements and our spiritual accomplishments will secure our peace and secure our place with God, even as believers. We can so easily gravitate to that place where again we are putting confidence in the flesh and not in Christ, where our right standing with God is concerned. So let's keep listening to Paul here. In verses 4 through 6 now, Paul puts his skates on, as it were, in the home arena where the Judaizers play. In effect, he says, fine. Let me play your game here for a minute on your ice, you, you Judaizers. Let me engage you on your own turf. Let me do that because I need to make a point. If you want to talk about placing confidence in the flesh, he says, look no further because I am 
the Connor McDavid or the uh, Rocket Richard for you Canadians fans, namely you, uh, Hugh. <laughs> I'm the Connor McDavid or the Rocket Richard of confidence in the flesh. If you want to talk uh, about Jewish pedigree and about Jewish performance as a way to get right with God, listen, Paul says, to my stellar resume. And then in verses 5 and 6, we get Paul's resume. We get his portfolio, all of which was put together in the days before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And this resume of Paul's sits very high on the top of the pile if you want to talk about the concept of trying to get right with God by pedigree and by good works. Now, interestingly enough, there are seven items on this resume, seven being the number of completeness in the Judaism of Paul's day. I don't think it's an accident that Paul lists seven things here. I think he's saying, my resume is as complete as you will find if you want to talk about works righteousness. So let's review Paul's resume together. Item number one, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. The very issue that he's arguing with, arguing over with the Judaizers, this issue of circumcision, he puts first on his resume here, circumcised on the eighth day. Isaac had been circumcised on the eighth day of his infant life. The law of Moses later commanded circumcision on the eighth day. John the Baptist and Jesus were both circumcised on the eighth day, and so was Paul. So Paul is saying here, I am no late-life convert to Judaism who was circumcised as an adult. No, I was already compliant with Jewish law at the age of eight days. Well, item two on Paul's resume is... Of the people of Israel, yes. Elsewhere in his writings, in Romans 11.1, 1, Paul identifies himself as an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. The idea is that Paul was a natural descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a true genetic Israelite, and Paul could prove it. Item three on Paul's resume is, of the tribe of Benjamin. Not only was Paul an Israelite, more specifically, he was of the subset of the tribe of Benjamin. The person Benjamin had held a special place in his father Jacob's heart. The person Benjamin was the only one of the twelve who had been born in the promised land. The first king of Israel had been from the tribe of Benjamin, and Paul, who once was named Saul, had been named after that king. And in the days of the rebellion against Rehoboam, only Benjamin and Judah remained loyal to the house of David. In the book of Esther, it was a Benjaminite named Mordecai who had helped to save the Jewish people from extermination. Paul was a Benjaminite. He had come from good Israelite stock. 
Item four on Paul's resume, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Here, Paul may be indicating that while many Jewish homes during his childhood had been absorbing the Greek influence of their surroundings, his parents had maintained a strict Judaism in the home using the Hebrew language when a lot of people were letting the Hebrew language uh, fade out of use. And his family also maintained Jewish customs and traditions. Paul was raised a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, before we go on to item five in this resume of Paul's, notice how the first four items that we just went through are all pedigree issues. That is, Paul played no part in the fact that he was circumcised on the eighth day, that he was born where he was, into the tribe that he was born into, and so on. But now, with the last three items on his resume, Paul switches to talk about things he did have a role in. Uh, these last three items are truly about works righteousness. The fifth item is, as to the law, a Pharisee. Paul says, you Judaizers want to play the game of law keeping and law observance as a means to get right with God? Well, none of you are as uh, scrupulous with the law as I was. I was a Pharisee trained by the prestigious Pharisee Gamaliel where keeping the Mosaic law and where keeping the oral law are concerned, Paul says, I was 100% committed. The law of Moses was my specialty. Item number six in verse six, Paul says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Yes, in his days before meeting Jesus Christ, Paul, who was at that point Saul, he had perceived himself as being a zealous keeper of the purity of God's people in the tradition of Phineas. Do you remember Phineas in the Old Testament? Out of a concern for the purity of God's chosen people, Phineas had killed an Israelite man and his Moabite wife. That story is in Numbers 25. And then within Judaism, following the time of Phineas, within Judaism, there was a tradition that grew up around Phineas's action. And it was further fueled by Psalm 106, verses 30 and 31. This tradition eventually manifested itself in the revolt of Mattathias and his sons against their Gentile overlords. It's a story we read about in the book, a non-biblical book. Uh, called Maccabees. Well, Paul had seen himself as being ensconced in that tradition. In Galatians 1.14, Paul describes himself back then as being extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He talks in that same passage about he, how he had persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he describes himself back then as being an insolent opponent of the church, 
And then, of course, in the book of Acts, in the days before his encounter with Jesus Christ, we see Paul ravaging the church. That, those are the words that are used in Acts, breathing, breathing out threats and murder against the church. Paul in those days had been operating in a zeal, to be sure, a zeal against the church. He was fully convicted that he was acting in God's interests. But in fact, what was happening is that Paul's zeal was entirely misplaced. Item seven on Paul's resume, the final item. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Well, what Paul means here is that in those days before he had his encounter with the risen Jesus, he had been careful to strictly observe the finer points of God's law. And in those areas where he was found guilty of sin, Paul had availed himself of the provisions in the law to atone for sin. Paul had been blameless in terms of strict external observance of the law of Moses. So now, friends, we've reached the end of Paul's resume. The question to us is, and this question is even to us as believers in Jesus who claim out loud that our being right with God is only in Christ. The question is, have we secretly actually been operating with a resume approach? Still somehow carrying around the idea that our own righteousness is the thing that is going to make God accept us. Are we operating in a resume approach? Are we busy compiling a resume like the one Paul compiled, uh, though we would never admit that? Are we depending on our own efforts at righteousness to be accepted by God? or? Are we resting fully in the righteousness that comes in Jesus? I encourage you to check yourself with all your might in every crack and crevice of your life. Am I actually depending on my own righteousness to be right with God? Or am I depending only on the righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ? You see, you will never appear righteous before God by means of what you do in this life or by means of what you don't do in this life. You will never appear righteous before God by what you say in this life or by what you don't say in this life. You will never appear righteous before God by giving faithfully in the offering plate or by getting baptized, or by taking communion, or by staying faithful to your wife and kids, or by adhering to rules, or by working for charity, or by striving for a good moral life. You will never get right with God by any means whatsoever, except by having on you the robe of Christ's righteousness as you stand before God. The greatest issue in your entire existence is, 
how will a holy God accept me? And the only way that will ever happen is if what you have, what the old, theolo old theologians used to call an alien righteousness. That is a righteousness that comes to you from outside yourself. It is the righteousness of the person of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. And this righteousness is given only to you by God. Now, please don't get me wrong. It is good and it is right and it is proper. It's very important for us in our faith to do good works, to serve, to be baptized, uh, to take communion. Of course, those things are crucial. But doing those things, the point is doing those things will never make us appear righteous before God. They will not have an effect on our standing before God only being robed in the righteousness of Christ will. Verse 7, Paul says, whatever gain I had, the noun gain here is in the plural in the original Greek text, gains, whatever gains I had. Paul here is talking about the gains he's just enumerated. The seven gains on his resume, the seven items of religious pedigree and religious performance. Whatever gains I had, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The word loss here is singular, one single loss. All seven gains on that resume were now one giant loss to Paul. Paul drew a big red circle around all seven of those items on his resume and the whole of them together were considered one giant loss. Now watch this. It wasn't just that what he had once considered to be gains in the gain column had now plummeted down to zero so that they were worthless. No, borrowing the imagery that John Kitchen gives us here, it wasn't just that what Paul once considered to be a life preserver had been taken away from him. It was rather that the life preserver itself had turned into a millstone around Paul's neck. The fact was that the gains had become liabilities. The gains had become debits. The gains were worse than worthless, to quote Dennis Johnson. And why had this dramatic shift happened? How had this dramatic shift happened? Look at the next line of the passage, for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I read a story recently about some 19th century Americans uh, who were trapped in winter in the mountains, forced to eat the gut on their snowshoes because all of their other food had run out. In that moment of starvation, I'm sure that that gut on their snowshoes, the bottom of their snowshoes, was quite precious to them because they had no other food. But imagine. What would they have done had you shown up in that moment with a full piping hot steak and lobster dinner? 
I'm sure that they would have simply tossed the gut into the snow. Well, when Paul met the risen Jesus on the road to, to Damascus, it was a moment of tossing the gut into the snow, ripping up the resume. That resume with its seven items was now worthless. It was a liability because the greatest, most valuable treasure in the universe, the one who is perfectly righteous, was right there before Paul. When Paul's heart was awakened to Jesus Christ, there was, as Matthew Harmon puts it, there was a radical shift in Paul's accounting methods. Harmon says, everything that Paul thought, believed, and valued was reevaluated in the light of who Jesus is and what he had done. Verse, verse 8. <coughs> Excuse me. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Wow. So not just the seven items in the resume now, but everything is loss. Everything. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul here sounds just like the man in Jesus' parable who finds the hidden treasure in the field that is the kingdom of heaven. You remember that? The man sold all he had to buy that field. Friends, there is nothing in the universe that approaches the infinite value, or what Paul here calls the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord, of having an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus. To borrow the imagery once again from John Kitchen, if you have a candle and it's lit and you're in a dark room, that candle has some value, obviously. But if you were able to take that candle and fly through space up to the sun and hold that lit candle in front of the sun, obviously the candle then becomes altogether worthless. The light of the sun would totally eclipse the light of the candle and render the candle useless. Well, on the Damascus Road, Paul had been confronted with the, per, with the person of Jesus, with, with the, the blazing light of, the, of God incarnate. Everything else that Paul had valued up to that point faded like the candle into the loss category. I wonder, friend, is Jesus your greatest treasure? Is he of supreme value to you, even above your own life? Paul continues here in verse 8, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, that I may gain Christ. Now, the word rubbish here is a word in the original Greek that the King James Version translates as the word dung, D-U-N-G. This is a word that describes manure or excrement and or 
garbage. The, the word refers to a highly undesirable material that is fit for a sewer or for a landfill. Paul is telling us here that all things, including his pedigree and his religious performance, his resume, these things are manure when it comes to gaining merit with God and acceptance with God. These things are fit to be flushed into the sewer in the matter of gaining righteous standing before God. And Paul considers these things manure or excrement notice in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's experience as he wrote this letter was already an experience of intimacy with the risen Christ. But Paul knew that he would gain Christ in a deeper way on the day of Christ when Paul would see Jesus face to face. I want you to notice before we go to verse 9, a very important theme that has emerged in this passage. Notice in verse 3, we glory in Christ. We glory in the person of Christ. And notice in verse 7 the phrase, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the person of Christ. And notice in verse 8, it's knowing Christ that Paul desires, and he wants to gain Christ. Listen, the things Christ dispenses, like forgiveness and like justification and like entrance into heaven, all of these are super important, of course, but those things are for the purpose of eternal fellowship with Christ himself. They are given that we might treasure Christ himself and enjoy Christ himself. I want you to be struck here by Paul's emphasis throughout the passage on the person of Christ and the supreme value of the person of Christ. Let's go to verse 9. Where does Paul want to be found? He wants to be found in him, in Christ. Paul wants his home address to be Christ. When the last day comes, Paul wants God to find Paul in God's Son, at home with Jesus, in intimate union and in fellowship with Jesus. And then Paul says, Here's what in Christ looks like. It looks like this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Notice, first of all, that there is a premium placed on righteousness in this verse. Every single one of us, without exception, is required to appear righteous as we stand before a perfectly righteous God. And every single one of us, without exception, right now falls into one of the two camps that Paul describes in this verse. There is no third camp. Either we have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, that Paul says here is an undesirable righteousness as you stand before God, or we have the required God-pleasing righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith 
two kinds of righteousness. The first kind of righteousness, the righteousness of our own that comes from the law, is the kind of righteousness that we found on Paul's resume. This first kind of righteousness is a righteousness that we produce or that we try to produce. This is a self-generated righteousness that we strive to create that comes through our own moral efforts and our own sweat, thinking that we can do what is necessary uh, to appear righteous before a perfectly righteous God. But again, friends, the label that Paul has given that first kind of righteousness is the label excrement, manure. It's a very strong word in the Greek. The second kind of righteousness in this verse is the only kind of righteousness that will allow you, that will allow me to stand and be accepted before the perfectly righteous God with whom we have to do. Paul describes this second kind of righteousness as a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The word faith appears twice in this verse. Think of faith as an open hand, as an open hand. An open hand receives what God gives. God is the one who gives the righteousness we need to be right with him. This righteousness is not accomplished by us. The righteousness we need is the perfect righteousness of another whose name is Jesus. God credits the righteousness of Jesus Christ to the account of the believer. We look away from ourselves to Christ, to his righteousness. We rest not in our own manure righteousness, in our filthy rags righteousness, but rather we rest in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we only have in union with him. In verse 10, Paul continues the theme of knowing Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That is, that I may experience by the Holy Spirit the indwelling resurrection life of Jesus and may share his sufferings, become, becoming like him in his death. You know, friend, the deepest and the most intimate knowledge of Jesus, the suffering servant, that we will attain is when, like him, we come to bear our cross. When we suffer the miseries of this world with our Lord. To know Jesus intimately and deeply is to be conformed to his death. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So here Paul looks ahead to the ultimate goal when his body will be resurrected physically, to be with Jesus physically forever. It's knowing Christ now and being in Christ now and resting in Christ's righteousness and not our own now 
that is the guarantee that the ultimate goal will be realized. Well, as I close, I want to bring a very serious warning to you. Right now in our world, there are millions of people, perhaps even billions of people who are trusting in themselves where being right with God is concerned. They are deceived into thinking that their righteousness, their morality, their good works will assure them eternal life with God. You need to know before, you're, before you die that self-trust endangers your eternity. God has told us in the passage we've looked at today that the only way, the only way that you and I will ever stand in right relationship with God is by being clothed with a righteousness not our own. The righteousness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died in our place to forgive us our sin and whose perfect obedience to God God then reckons to our account by faith. And so the question is, my friend, have you trusted Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, for your righteousness? If not, you can do that right now. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Pray to God. Confess to him that you are a sinner who has sinned against him. Acknowledge before him that you need the Savior named Jesus, who shed his blood in your place to forgive you of your sin. Turn from your sin. Ask God for the forgiveness he's provided in Jesus and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Surrender your life to him from this day forward. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for this revelation that you have given us. We thank you for laying out the plan of your rescue so wonderfully and powerfully and beautifully. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the person of Jesus, the one who shed his blood to forgive us of our sin, the one who gives us his own righteousness as we uh, give to him our sin and transgression, and he takes that sin and transgression to the cross where it is punished. He is our substitute, and we thank you so much, Lord, for your son. We pray now, Lord, that you would continue with us as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.